Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times in Bloomington, along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're going to review the 2008 session of the Indiana General Assembly. With us in the studio is State Senator Vi Simpson and State Representative Milo Smith. They're making a return appearance. They were here with us right before the session, and now they're back to tell us what happened. By Welcome. popular demand. By popular That's demand. right. You're huge around People here. People have been huge. demanding your return. Thank you very much for coming back. Mary Catherine? Hi, Bob. We've had, uh, we haven't been here together for a few weeks. So right. We've been spring-breaking like and other reunions. things. So. And other things. Yeah. That's right. Well, we're, we're, we're happy to have both Vi and Milo here with us today. Thank you. It was Thanks. an interesting session. There's no question about that, particularly for one of those short sessions, as they say. So let's let's get right to it, and we'll give uh, Vi first the chance to sort of summarize what happened, and then Milo. So how about just a short summary of how you think things went? Oh, sure, Bob. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> a short summary. Well, we'll get then, then we can get into much more. Well, at least I, I appreciate that you're here today. Usually, when I come, you don't come. <laughs> so <laughs> I was here last time. <laughs> well, wasn't that's I? true. That's true. So, um, well, let's see the property taxes. Mm-hmm. This session was uh, supposed to be about property taxes all the time, and it mostly was. We got a few other things accomplished, but primarily, uh, I think, fairly landmark legislation. Uh, whether you were for it or against it, it certainly was landmark legislation. Uh, that uh, will lower property taxes on a statewide average about 30 percent on for homeowners. Uh, but that varies from about 20 up to 50 in some areas, like little Brown County right next door, right between Milo's and, and my right. districts. Um, we'll see property decreases, uh, property tax decreases of about 50 percent under the proposal. Um, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be cautious. That doesn't mean we won't be coming back in November and fixing all some of the mistakes that uh, were obviously made. Um, but overall, I think um, we did what we promised people we would do, which was come to this legislative session and reduce our reliance on property taxes to fund local government services and uh, and and uh, schools and, and to remove some of the statewide tax levies like uh, statewide tax budgets like welfare and uh, uh, juvenile incarceration and some of those things. So I think overall people will be very satisfied with their property tax bills. They will, they might be less satisfied depending on where they live because every county is um, treated differently under this proposal. Um, but depending on where they live, they might be less satisfied with uh, the level of uh, local government services that they might receive in the future, and they might be less satisfied with some of the cuts to public schools. Okay. What were the mistakes that you mentioned, Vi? Can you give us an example of what you're referring to? Well, I think I think one of the major shortfalls in the bill are the shortfalls that it creates for local governments and for public schools. Um, because even with some of the mitigation that we worked very hard to get into the legislation uh, for public schools. There's still about a $95 million shortfall statewide, uh, which means that although everyone's property taxes will go down, the state isn't picking up the entire tab for schools. Uh, there will be a shortfall. But that shortfall is uh, very focused. It's uh, focused in about 30 of the uh, largest, most urban school corporations around the state. Um, some would argue that th- 
that those are the school corporations where the money is needed the most. Um, and others argue that the per pupil expenditures in those school corporations are way higher than they are in other schools. So um, there was a lot of debate over that. And uh, and I, I know when we get together to do the budget next year that uh, we're that there's going to be a huge fight over the old fights about whether growing school corporations deserve the money more than urban school corporations with declining enrollments, but but a lot of at-risk children. So, um, so I think that's the major error, uh, and also the part about um, not enough financial tools for local government to make up some of the shortfalls there. Um, and I know Milo will be will agree with me, although we may be the only two left in the legislature <laughs> that believe that there's still work to do on the assessment, the reassessment mm-hmm. process itself. Um, there, we didn't clean it up as much as I would have liked. Are you referring to the market value, the fair market value? Is that what you mean? Well, just the whole the whole process. And Milo's really the expert on the procedure itself. And uh, uh, yeah, the whole how we do a reassessment, who does reassessment, and how and how that reassessment process is is, uh, is distributed or um, applied statewide. Okay. Milo? That, that opens the door for me to go into my next uh, thing on my agenda today. The uh, state of Indiana, the DLGF, has 54 counties that have sent their, t- their assessments to the DLGF to be certified. And it's a comparison between 2007 and 2008 assessed values. Hmm. And I'll just cite a couple of counties. Uh, there's no uniformity in these assessments. And uh, Lawrence County's uh, one of their assessments went up 19.65 percent in commercial, industrial over last year. I don't believe anybody's uh, values have increased 19.65 percent. And then I go on to the the most egregious one is Wabash County. Their commercial or their vacant industrial went up 175 percent over last year. And their vacant residential went up 832 percent over last year. And here's the sheet. I wish I could show it to everyone that's listening. <laughs> is that kind of a true up or what's, what's no, the deal No. No. There's one of two things wrong is what uh, Representative Espick said. And I said, well, it's one of three things. He said either the assessments were wrong last year or they're wrong this year. And I said, or they're wrong both years, yeah. <laughs> which is a third thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, the DLGF's got a tough job in front of them. But this here just confirms what Senator Simpson just said. It's impossible to have uniform and fair assessments, not just next door, Mm -hmm. but throughout the state, which is required by the Constitution. And until we follow the same set of rules and same set of guidelines Mm -hmm. throughout the state, and I was successful in getting an amendment to House Bill 1001 that said all assessors had to follow the rules and the same set of rules to determine uniform assessments. And right now, it's left up to the assessor, and they just chased this number called the bottom line, and some counties do it better than others, but you can see these 54 counties disagree greatly. Mm-hmm. And until we can make everybody follow the same set of rules and have uniform assessment standards, which leads me into the next thing, we've asked DLGF to come back this summer and make a recommendation to us. And I believe the cost price tag might be up to $80 million that we have one uniform assessment system, a software program, not just for the assessor, but for the auditor and treasurer as well. And the assessors and where it all links together. And I mean, a lot of taxpayers will go in and they'll try to check their tax bill. Well, you got to go to the next office down the hall mm. or upstairs. Well, if you have uniform assessment uh, software program, you can check 
in one office and get all your answers without being sent on down the hall. Isn't there always going to be some subjectivity to this process? There always will be, but I can minimize it if and just because I'm one of 150, I keep telling everybody, I know how to do this. I've been correcting assessments for taxpayers for 19 years as a small business person. And I get some nods across uh, the aisle from me and from the other chamber, and I believe more people are listening to me, but it's just going to take me a lot longer than one term to convince everybody how to do it. Okay. All right. Our phone numbers today, 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. You can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. This is your opportunity to talk with uh, State Senator Vi Simpson, State Representative Milo Smith, and we're talking about the legislature. Uh, we have an email, but before that, I want to I follow up a little bit about this assessment process. Um, what, how did we end up with, uh, with the township assessors? Are they going to be gone? Yes, no? with okay. the exception of 44 that have at least 15,000 parcels you know, in their district. And then that will be subject to referendum at the general election this fall. And if the voters say we want to keep this township assessor, then they'll stay. If not, those duties will be transferred to the county assessor. All right. So do you think that that step is going to help us get closer to some sort of um, balanced look at assessment throughout the state? It will help us get closer, but it won't unless we make everybody follow the same set of rules and guidelines. And if the rules and guidelines – and need to be changed and tweaked. Let's tweak them, but let's all follow the same ones. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Here's an email that came in. It says, can you tell us why House Bill 1219, unemployment insurance, had a hard time in the Senate and how things turned around in conference committee? Um, that bill, uh, unemployment insurance bills always have a tough time in the yes. Senate. Um, the uh, labor labor committee traditionally has not been very uh, sympathetic or sensitive to uh, labor issues. Um, they, you know, if, if some if you have to put people into boxes and say they take sides, I would say that the Senate Labor Committee is very pro management, and the House Labor Committee is very pro uh, worker. And so, what we have usually is a big. Uh, a kind of a, a, a war between between the House and the Senate on these issues, mm-hmm. and so it's. Um, uh, I'm simplifying it, of course, but um, it. But but that that usually you can almost guarantee if there if there are two partisan committees in the legislature, uh, those are the two: the House mm-hmm. Labor Committee and the Senate Labor Committee, and they and and they really revolve around management labor issues primarily. All right, Milo, any reaction to that? No, she's very correct. <laughs> I mean, I think well, she is. I'm I mean, not that, sounds, that just sounds like the history of Indiana right. in a in a, a microcosm. Yes, right. and it, you know, although there is some partisanship in other committees, I think it really manifests itself in those in those two committees more than any place else. Okay. Well, let's go back to to the uh, the property tax issue, and this was, as as you've said, sort of a well, certainly a major um, piece of legislation, and um, it, it may we may consider this a historic session. Yes. Um, so we've talked about people who have property. Property taxpayers are going to have their tax bill reduced by 20 percent to 50 percent. So I think the average is 31 percent. 31 percent. So property taxpayers should be happy with this. Now, what yes. about people who don't own property? Are they going to be paying a higher proportion of the bill in some way? 
everyone has to have housing and even if they don't own their primary residence, they're living somewhere. So hopefully they're whoever owns their property won't have to raise their rents in order to pay the additional property tax. And I can't speak for landlords, but uh, hopefully they won't raise the rents and they might even want to decrease them a little bit. One one of my concerns was uh, um, how renters play into this whole scenario because, of course, since the sales tax was raised by one cent um, to pay for the property tax relief. Renters will be paying that as well as homeowners. And so we wanted to be sure that we were focused a little bit on people who rent and people in, in the lower income levels. Um, and there is a great correlation, by the way. Um, Bloomington is a little skewed because we have so many renters in Bloomington. But ac- across the state, uh, primarily renters are lower income families. And uh, so we wanted to make sure that we were doing something for the people who wouldn't be getting so much in property tax relief or anything in property tax relief, and, but we're still paying into the relief pot, as it were. And so uh, we did increase the renter's deduction uh, a little. It's not a lot, but it is increased so that they'll be able to take a a larger deduction on their income tax form. Uh, We also increased significantly, and and this was one of my favorite parts, the earned income tax credit, which is related, has been 6% of the federal earned income tax credit for lower income families. Uh, We raised that to 9%, which is significant. so it, it will uh, it will be a uh, it, it it's almost a wash for lower income families in terms of how how much the sales tax will be increased for those families uh, and how much they'll be able to claim on their earned income tax credit. This was something that uh, the Democrats worked very hard to get in because we were we were very I think the last time we were here we talked about the burden of paying into for the property tax relief of what the Speaker of the House referred to as the mansions in Hamilton County who were getting the majority of the uh, property tax relief. Uh, That's still true, by the way. The the larger your house is, the greater your property tax relief. But we, we were able to mitigate somewhat the impact on lower income families. All right. Our phone numbers again, 855-0811-877-285-9348. And you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Now, you, you mentioned the fact that the sales tax, of course, that's the, the big one. It goes from 6% to 7%. So On April Fool's on, Day. On April Fool's Day. That's coming right up. Um, and we have the big property tax relief, but the so if anybody has large purchases to make, get out there and do it right <laughs> yeah. this week. Yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> so the the um, the difference though between what the sales tax is going to bring in and what the property tax relief is going to be is still very significant. I think the, yes. the governor said for every dollar seventy two in property tax relief, relief there'll be a dollar paid in in sale in increased sales tax. So what about that that gap that seventy two cent gap? Is there are there more ways that 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 revenue is going to be coming in? to get that 72 cents or are there just going to be reduced services to taxpayers? Most of that additional revenue is going to come from taxes on the slot machines that we just approved last year at the two horse tracks. Mm -hmm. And there will be deductions like Senator Simpson said earlier uh, because once the caps kick in, there will be less money that local units will have and they'll have to figure out some way of raising that revenue. And if they can't, they'll have to reduce their cost of government. Any concerns uh, from you two on the 
amount uh, or the percentage of our state budget that's now reliant on yes. gambling revenue. Absolutely. And even though that's a way we're funding a lot of our government, I voted against that last year, allowing the slots to, to be licensed at the two horse tracks. And, and now we have pull tabs. And pull tabs yeah. at the local bars and, and uh, drawings up to $300, and you can have more than one. I, it doesn't specify only one a day. And uh, I think we need to be focusing our resources on making for certain everyone gets a good education and not trying to take a chance on hitting a home run through some type of gambling. Mm-hmm. Bye. Do you want to comment on that? Well, I, anybody that thinks that Indiana isn't a gaming state is is being a bit naive at this point. Um, we, we crossed the Rubicon many years ago right. uh, when we passed the lottery. And over the years, my colleagues have, have become more and more uh, – um, voracious in their appetite for um, replacing other kinds of revenue with uh, with gaming revenue. Mm-hmm. And so now it is uh, our third uh, largest contributor to uh, to the state revenue pot and uh, and and it's become a very important part of uh, of our budget. Uh, but um, let me just say it although that part of the budget has been somewhat stable in terms of the revenue stream, um, I'm, I'm very worried about the future because we have a, a governor now in Kentucky uh, who ran on uh, a pro-gaming um, uh, platform. platform yep. Thank you. And, um, and we have uh, more and more talk about, uh, about legalizing gaming, additional gaming in Chicago and, uh, and the uh, greater Chicago area, which will have a huge impact on, on some of our riverboats in that area. There's also an Indian, a new Indian casino just across the border in Michigan, right across the border from Michigan City, which mm. uh, has a, an impact on that facility. So I, I think we are at some risk there. Um, and plus now we have raised the sales tax by two cents right. uh, and applied that to order. property tax relief. Uh, and so those two cents of, um, of sales tax revenues, which we have always said was the state's major revenue raiser, um, are, is now going directly to homeowners. Uh, and other property taxpayers in the state, and and so we have, and, and and there is a finite amount of sales tax you can collect and still uh, keep your businesses uh, competitive and right. so on. So you know, I think uh, over the long haul, you know, the legislature isn't set up very well for long range planning, <laughs> and uh, because we tend to think in two year. Uh, pieces from election to election. And um, and some of this property tax discussion, in, in, there's not a doubt in my mind, is driven by election year and uh, election year uh, antics, if you will. Um, and and I, I'm not sure how much long-range thinking went into mm-hmm. uh, went into all that we did. So I, I have some concerns over the long Hall about sustainability of of this whole property tax notion. Everybody in here wants to talk. I, I have a yeah. very quick. Okay. No, no, I, I, that Go was not it. not directed. at you. I'm getting you. rather philosophical. No, no, today. that's no. fine. That, that wasn't directed at you. I, I, it was directed at Mary Catherine. Who's trying to cut me off. No. <laughs> I just wanted a very quick follow up. the The third largest contributor to the state revenue pot after sales tax and and, and individual prop- income tax. Individual income tax. Yes. Worth property tax. 
Well, property tax oh. doesn't pay for state uh, budgets at all. Uh, property tax is, is large, but it, it yeah. has always gone to local government and schools. Okay. Okay. We all were right. taking one-tenth of one percent, and in House Bill 1001, we're not going to take that anymore. Okay. So 100 percent will stay locally. And Senator Simpson raised this issue, and I want to follow into it. I'm concerned that our revenue, is main, our revenue stream is steady. And in December, we lost $14 million over what we thought we would get. In January, $52 million and 43 – or $28 million, I'm sorry, and $43 million in February. So that's a total of $85 million that we're off what we thought we were projecting to get. Why is it we never make as much as we project? Well, that's not the case. <laughs> Sometimes we make more. More, yeah. Um, and, you know, we, we do these – these big calculations with a panel of experts right. and we and and uh, it's upon those projections that right. we base our budget right. and uh, and everybody agrees to those so it's a, whatever those projections are but we but we track it every month so we know how how, what, how our spending yeah. needs to be adjusted and um, and and one of the things that concerns me about this property tax thing, you know, everybody wants property tax relief and mm-hmm. and I want it too and, and we did what we said we were going to do for the people. But, but uh, over the long haul – and this is why I keep talking about sustainability. We have periods of recession, economic downturn or recession and uh, during those periods, uh, our revenue streams – our growth in our revenue stream drops off. Mm-hmm. This whole plan is based on a 4% revenue growth for the state of Indiana. 4% is about what we average over a 20-year period per year. But if you pull out the recession times, the last recession we had was a four-year economic downturn, and our average growth was zero during that time. Last year, we went – the year before, we were about 6.5% revenue growth. 2007, we dropped to 1.9 percent. And this year, as Milo pointed out with the numbers he just gave, we are $57 million down for this year in, from our projections. If we are – depending on how long and how deep this recession is, and I believe this is a recession regardless of what the governor argues, depending on how long and deep this is, we may not be able to sustain the big bite of the pie that we just bid off in ten in in ten oh one, and so um, I that's why I believe we're going to go back in November and have to make adjustments because we'll have a better picture then of where we are financially for the state of Indiana, um, taking off all the levies that we took off and reducing the property taxes by increasing homestead credits and all the other things we did is about a billion dollars. If our sales tax falls off and some of the other revenue streams falls off significantly, we're going to have some trouble meeting our obligations. Yeah. All right. We have a phone call. So let's go to the phones. And Robert. Robert? Yeah, uh, that last comment was interesting. But I'll get, get to my first uh, question here. Uh, on the uh, reassessments, uh, there's a basic assumption there that property values always increase everywhere. Uh, that's not the case, mm-hmm. and uh, therefore your, your uh, reassessment values, are they ever going to get uh, lowered? Uh, the house I live in, I probably can't get out of it what it's assessed for on account of local market conditions. And, Milo, you were talking yes. about having uniform standards for assessment purposes. That's fine. 
but not all areas are the same. Some places, houses may still be going up, but they're sure not in Franklin, Indiana. Right. Robert, that's a good question, and I would contact, if you think your assessment is higher than what you could get for it, I would call my assessor Monday morning and tell them just that. And there's a process you can go through and present the information to them, and they should be able to lower that assessment for you. Well, I understand that, but uh, reassessment comes around, what, every year or every other it's year? It's every by year law. now. It yeah. is, it's every year now. Okay, well, uh, realistically, a lot of areas in Indiana should be readjusted downward, I do believe, mm-hmm. and that's going to play hell with your uh, overall budget you were just discussing. Well, one other thing, too, those assessments are based upon previous years, two years previous to the assessment date. So it's not really the current year because it takes them almost six or eight months to process the data. So they have to go back and use history. And and so uh, if, if if everything works like we think it will, um, you your assessment should trend downward. We're trending assessments now annually. So your assessment should trend downward to uh, to match the market va- the fair market value for what it is this year, it should m- trend downward next year next or the year. year after. Yes. All right. All right, Robert. We shall see. But we I shall see. This uh, national economy says we're all in for some rough times. We are yeah, in yeah. for some rough times. I believe yeah. that too, Robert. Okay. Yep. Thank you. All thank right. you, Robert. Thanks a lot for the call, Robert. And we have another call before we go to break. Let's go to Natalie first. Natalie. Yes. Uh, I just wanted to remind your listeners that the League of Women Voters will be holding its final legislative update for this year tomorrow morning in the main uh, Monroe County Public Library building, room 1C at 9.30. We've invited Senator Simpson and Representatives Welch and Pierce. So we hope that a big crowd will come out and you can speak personally with the legislators. All right, Natalie, thanks a lot. I'll for see you tomorrow, you. Natalie. <laughs> All right, good. <laughs> All right, you won't see Milo there, but you see other people. Is there anything like that in, in Columbus? Any yes, final we, session? We don't have anything set up for a final, but we have third house meetings sure. every mm-hmm. week, every Monday morning through the session. Yeah. Okay, well, we're talking about the uh, 2008 legislative session this year with State Senator Vi Simpson and State Representative Milo Smith. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage, using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2 owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info. WFIU thanks all who support public radio. Next time you're visiting one of our business supporters, please let them know that you appreciate their support of WFIU. Perhaps you're involved in decision-making at a business or profession in the WFIU listening area. If you'd like your message to reach WFIU listeners, you can find out more about benefits of underwriting with a call to 1-800-662-3311 or a visit to our website at wfiu.org.
Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're talking about the 2008 session of the Indiana General Assembly. With us in the studio are State Senator Vi Simpson from Ellettsville. She represents the Monroe County area. And State Representative Milo Smith, who's from Columbus. Yes. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or send your email to noon at indiana.edu. So, senior citizens, seniors, older older Hoosiers. Yes. My constituents wanted to know from one year to the next how much are my property taxes going to increase, and that's one of the reasons that the governor came up with that, the 1, 2, and 3 percent caps. But we also went a little bit further for seniors. And if if you and your wife are married and make less than 40000 a year and your assessment's less than $160,000, the most your tax bill can go up, your tax bill, not your assessment, is 2% a year. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that helps a lot of, uh, of seniors who don't have a lot of income and don't live mm-hmm. in a Taj Mahal. Right, mm-hmm. right. And what kind of increases were those folks seeing? It was all over the place. Yeah. And if they lived in an older home, and it's another one of these not uniform assessments, if you lived in an older home, historically, you looked at how much it would cost to rebuild that house and then look at the age and give it a lot of depreciation, sometimes up to 80 percent. So that those older homes might be assessed for 40000 and were selling for 100 mm-hmm. So now they're getting it closer to market value. So that's why some of these older homes, why their taxes doubled and tripled. Right. Okay. So it's, there's not a clear answer. Yeah. So many variables on all these decisions. It's, it's really amazing. Right. Um, I have to give you guys credit. I mean, that's just so, so many things to consider. And then there are the unintended consequences. Un- unintended. Right. Yeah. I, I think Hoosiers uh, should be certainly satisfied. Uh, I mean, not everybody's going to be, but the legislature, it was a, it seemed to be a very civil session. It seemed yes. to be that people did compromise and work together to try to get some, some form of property tax relief. By, I, I was at the last uh, third house session here, and, and I wrote a short editorial quoting you afterward about the process because both you and and Matt Pierce talked a little bit about the fact that you would be getting this huge document with maybe, you know, a few hours to look through it to see, Mm -hmm. you know, what was in it before you would have to actually vote on it. Could you talk a little bit about how the process worked this year? Well, actually, um, it it worked – it worked better than usual when we get those big documents. That it's usually the budget that is uh, that is so huge, and it's thrown out there in the last few hours. Um, and and I'm a, I'm a, usually a conferee on the budget, so I always know what's in it. But you know, it's, it, it's hard sometimes to explain to everybody else in a short amount of time when you finally reach an agreement. Um, this year, however, there was some rush to get it everything done the night before the last day, and so they threw out the uh, the compromise on 1001. And Milo and I had both been involved in the in the negotiations on 1001, so um, so we knew what was in it for the most part. But everybody else just got this you know, 900 page bill thrown out at them, and um, and so our caucus. Um, actually went to caucus and said, um, 
no, you know, we're not going to do it this way. We've got a whole nother day. Let's sleep on it. There, people were, were getting very angry because they had, didn't have a chance to understand everything that was in it. And it's very complicated stuff. If you don't deal with property taxes all the time or budgetary issues all the time, there's no way that you can absorb it in an hour. And so um, – and so we just kind of slowed the process down. We went and talked to Senator Long, the leader of the Senate, and asked, uh, told him that we were interested in staying off the floor that evening, and we'll, we'll come back tomorrow and finish it up. But we, we just wanted to take 24 hours to think on it. And then we went and talked to the speaker, and he agreed. And so that, so we were able to slow it down. Um, I'd like to see the budget ha- have at least 24 <laughs> hours on the desk uh, next session. We'll see if that happens. But um, it's very important that people understand what they're voting on. And I can't mm-hmm. tell you how often it occurs. Uh, I'm just lucky because I'm, I'm usually in those discussions. But I can't tell you how often it occurs that uh, that people are voting on things just because someone said, well, you need to vote for this. Be, uh, trust me. Well, and you're held accountable for those yes. things. Come you absolutely time. are. And, and, you know, again, you have people to answer to. So uh, I can see how that would be a, a much better system if you have more time to digest these things, which leads me to the question, do you think that the way we're currently set up with a short session followed by a long session, you know, alternating years, is still an appropriate way to run state government? If you had your choice, would you change that system? Wow. I I think we should have two long sessions. Um, there is no such thing as an emergency session anymore. Mm-hmm. It you know these this short session was set. It used to only be one session every other year, and we do the budget and we do whatever else needed to be done, and then we go home. Uh, and then they added the emergency session, which is the short session for those emergencies that come up. Well, now like you property know, tax relief. yeah, <laughs> now we're reforming the entire tax code mm-hmm. and the assessment process in a short session, which was you know one of my complaints going into this session that. It's ridiculous to take on such a huge, com- complicated issue in uh, the two months or two and a half months that we had available to us. Um, and so uh, as the issues have gotten more complicated, and they really have, uh, environmental issues, you have immigration issues, you have all mm-hmm. of these huge issues that are very complex. Um, and uh, trying to fit all of those things into the two and a half months is is ridiculous. Either we should go back to one session every two years or we should have two long sessions so that we can even out our workload. Mm-hmm. And, and I know that during those two and a half months, there are a it's lot insane. of demands. Yeah, there are it's a lot insanity. of demands on your time. It's not just um, showing up to caucus and, and for votes and then spending the rest of your time secreted in your office. Office, no. reading up bills. It's, you know, the citizen interaction is, is substantial. Do you want it's to intense. comment on that, Milo? Yes. And I believe that's one of the most important things we do is to communicate with our constituents back home. And uh, there was an issue where uh, the city of Columbus was going to lose, they thought, $2.78 million out of next year's budget because of the caps. And the mayor brought in 18 of his policemen in uniform because <laughs> he said, I'm going to have to lay up to 29 of these people off if that's true. Mm. And so, you know, you have that impact. You have a lot of emails from, from all those policemen, firemen and their families and, and everybody else and said, you know, how can you, how can you do that? And that's, that's not intended. And I've just got real concerns that we're able to fund what we said we would fund. 
and uh, my illustration here with the downturn in the uh, sales tax yeah. revenue, that's one of the reasons that I wasn't in favor of getting rid of property taxes altogether because it's such a stable source of income mm-hmm. and we have to educate every young person in the state and not charge them for it mm-hmm. through the 12th grade. We have a couple of callers that want to join the program. So let's Good. go first to Charlie. Charlie? Yes. Um, I, this is kind of late to the discussion. Uh, it was more about assessment than what you're talking about right now. But one of my concerns is uh, being a contractor and dealing with realtors and property is that what someone and uh, a person who comes in and assesses a property and says its value is not necessarily what it would make in the market. And I've run into a number of instances where uh, either because a house was uh, wanted by someone or not wanted by people determined the, you know, the value of it. It's really what someone will pay for it, not some arbitrary figure because of how many bathrooms it has and how many bedrooms it has. Right. So it's just kind of really hard for me to imagine uh, you know, someone assessing a home not knowing what someone will, would be willing to pay for it. Milo, you are you're, you're absolutely right, Charlie. And when you're assessed that way, you're really paying taxes on an unrealized gain Mm -hmm. because you don't know what that house is going to sell for until it sells. And by definition, market value isn't until you have a ready, willing, and able purchaser and a ready, willing, and able seller. And right now you have a ready and willing owner and an assessor who's determining Mm -hmm. what the market value is. Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right, Charlie. And and there's a process you can go through and you can appeal this. But – most of the time, even though the governor said an appraisal is not required, that's still your best evidence to lower your assessment based upon yeah. market conditions. And then you have to make it applicable to the year that the assessment was, was arrived at. Like for 2008, it would be 2006 and 7 data. So you've got to yeah. make it go backwards, if you will. Yeah, I mean, for it's time. very complicated for the government. I'm not, you know, right. I'm not saying that there they, that there's a solution. It's just that even an assessor is basing it on information that is not appropriate to that particular house. Anyway, and one last so, thing on that: the reason they do that, and they, they're supposed to be applying. Look at a neighborhood and say it's a subdivision XYZ, and they're saying, okay, homes in XYZ have increased 10% since last year. So they apply that 10% market factor to every home in that neighborhood. And you might have some that are 200,000 and others that are 50, but they're still getting the 10 percent neighborhood factor. Yeah, it's pretty tricky. Yeah. Thank you, Charlie. Charlie, thanks for the call. Okay. All right. All right, Charlie. I should say also uh, Morton Marcus, who (laughs) everybody knows, has written about that very topic for – in a column that's going to be in our paper tomorrow. So he's not a big fan of the assessment Mm -hmm. process as we have it. All right. Let's go to Michael. Michael? Yeah. Hi. Um, First of all, thank you for all – on, and on behalf of the taxpayers. But I, I'm calling, and Milo's aware of this conversation a few years ago or last year, about using prop, bottle and can returnable legislation in the state of Indiana. And the fact that that would garner probably somewhere in the area of 25 to $30 million per year for the state, free and clear. And I just wonder why we don't do something like that. So you're, you're talking about a bottle bill of some sort? Yeah, so, a bottle bill like mm-hmm. is in Iowa, in Michigan, New York, New Jersey. Uh-huh. Um, and at the end of the day, it's really a, a knucklehead bill because the people who don't <laughs> return their bottles and cans, that money goes primarily to the state. And the state of Michigan, um, you know, reports revenues of somewhere upwards of $25 million a year. And, it's, and especially when you drive through the countryside, and, Milo, when you drive home today, and you'll see all the way along between Columbus and Bloomington, the bottles and cans in the ditches, it's, it's just money laying there to be picked up yeah. and clean up the environment. So 
And Milo, I know you tried to get that through a, a couple of years ago, and it yeah. didn't make it out of committee. My first year. Yeah, and it, I can only urge you and everybody who's you know still. I know you're out for this year, but when you go back next year, to do something about that for everybody. Well, thank you, Michael, and I uh, recognize your voice. So please keep in contact with me, and and uh, we can work together to come up with some solution to. To increase revenues and keep the ditches clean. What yeah. are people's uh, opposition to that? I mean, it does sound pretty doable. I, I don't know much about it, but what are people's opposition? Well, I'll tell you, we've had a booth out at Earth Day a couple of years up in Indianapolis. We've had people of all ages and all, all walks of life embrace this. The only thing that held this up a few years ago, and I even talked to Senator Gardner about this years ago, was held up by... Uh, the Ball Corporation and some, some of the big bottlers in the state not want it and not wanting to deal with it. But the reality is um, it's not a problem. You know, and the states around us are doing it, and it's just a matter of willpower. And uh, I, would, I would love to see the governor embrace something like this and take it on and, and you know, just look in the streams today when you drive home and in the ditches. It's, it's fundamentally disturbing uh, here in the state to Michael, uh, I'll leave it with that. And I, again, thank you for your efforts. Michael, right. this is uh, Vi speaking. I, I wanted to let you know that in 1988, I believe, uh, former state Senator Ed Pease, who later became the congressman from the Terre Haute area, Brazil area, uh, he and I co-authored a bottle bill uh, for the state of Indiana. And there were some kids from the Spencer-Owen uh, County schools who came and testified. They made it a school project, and they came and testified, and they were wonderful. We got all kinds of publicity for it. And the the big glass manufacturers, and there's, there's more than Ball Corporation, and there are some <laughs> other glass manufacturers in Indiana, uh, they came and killed the bill so quickly you couldn't even have blinked. It was um, it was. It was something to see, but anyway, uh, I remember those kids. They were they went on to go to college and be politically involved. They all got to testify. It was a wonderful project, but unfortunately, uh, I think the same the same forces are still at work. Mm-hmm. But thanks for your call. Well, yeah. let's let's hope that those forces don't prevail much longer, because you know uh, Governor Daniels is a big proponent of healthy uh, the whole healthy trails initiatives and things mm-hmm. like that. It's pretty disconcerting when you're walking down those healthy trails to see this, the money that could be in the state's coffers being distributed along the ground. So anyway, enough of my chat, and thank you again. <laughs> thank Have you. a wonderful day and happy spring. Thanks, All right. Thank you. Thanks this lot, will keep Michael. us focused on recycling for the next year. Right. <laughs> All right, we have about 10 minutes left in the program. The phone numbers, again, are 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Can we depart just a little bit? I advise and <laughs> spent the day with Hillary Clinton uh, yesterday. and I'd like, to <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to hear about your experience, and I'm sure our listeners would too. Oh, it was, uh, it was a great experience, actually, and I – Anybody who has the opportunity to go and listen to a presidential uh, candidate, um, regardless of party, regardless of who you're supporting, it it is really a phenomenal experience. There's a lot of energy in the room, a lot of excitement. These people really know how to warm up a crowd, I'll tell you. But but for me, as a person who has run statewide Mm -hmm. for office and – and who's run for office locally, um, uh, just to see the the operation – of of a of a 
huge, big presidential campaign is amazing. Uh, the logistics mm-hmm. of moving people from one place to another and the advance people who go out and mm-hmm. make sure that the right seats are reserved and you've got the right mix of people that are going to be on the TV cameras and and uh, that, that there's a space for the press and, and, and that everything is laid out there just right. There's just the right amount of water in a glass that's sitting on a stool so that she can reach it when she needs it. And it's it's a phenomenal thing, and that and and for those of us who were considered the <clears throat> VIPs, um, uh, former Governor Joe Kernan and mm-hmm. and Maggie Kernan were with us, and former First Lady Judy O'Bannon were with us, and the, the Speaker of the House and a lot of legislators were were traveling, and they made sure we were fed and that we had a bottle of water in our hand. There there was there were. Uh, staff people everywhere. It's just amazing how how perfectly the logistics were put together, um, and uh, getting us from Terre Haute to Anderson to Evansville all in one piece. It was an exhausting day. How she got up in Evansville and and spoke with this with the energy and vitality that she did was amazing to me because I was exhausted <laughs> and I hadn't done anything except travel around yeah. but it was I really urge anybody um, if Barack Obama or John McCain or anybody comes to Indiana within hearing right. uh, distance mm-hmm. go it is worth your time and effort it is a very exciting day well thanks for telling us about yeah, that clearly the Indiana uh, Democratic primary is going to be very interesting and, and Indiana matters for a, for a change. Right. It's been unusual. Yes. Sorry, sorry, Milo. You, and it's a, you've already it's decided. About yeah. time. Yeah. It's about time that yeah. Indiana's Indiana in the matters. Mix. All right. We have a phone call. It's Al. Al? Hello. Hello, Al. Yes. Um, I'm going to go back to the property tax thing. Sure. Um, question. Uh, my understanding is the bill that it was passed, and I don't know how it passed, when it requires an amendment to the state constitution. Yeah, uh, and my also, and if I understand things right, uh, an amendment to the state constitution takes a majority vote by the people. So, yeah, yeah, that's a very good question for you to ask, Alan. And how can you sign a bill into law when it needs an amendment to the constitution? Uh, and why wasn't the time spent to start with uh, for an amendment? to repeal property taxes, which I think the majority of the people want. Well, let's let uh, Senator Simpson and Representative um, Milo answer Smith. this question. Milo Smith, <laughs> right. That's me. Well, yeah. I, you know, I wanted to call him Milo. That's fine. Okay. Milo, um, uh, there was a hearing. There were several hearings on a constitutional amendment to repeal all of property taxes. Um, the property tax bill that passed uh, does not require a constitutional amendment. It goes into effect, has the effect of law. Constitutional amendments um, are are not required for statute to go into effect. Uh, and the real debate is over what it, what should be the wording of a constitutional amendment and uh, whether we're going to lock future legislatures into whatever it is we negotiated this year 
or whether we're going to leave some flexibility to correct any errors that were made and to to make any changes for the future. Uh, this whole sustainability question uh, having to do with the economy and and those kinds of things it are make it very difficult to lock in a constitution in my opinion to lock in a constitutional amendment this year before we give this a try and see if this is really going to work. The one the one percent, two percent, three percent caps on um, on the um, uh, assessed valuations uh, are just they're not magic numbers. It's something the governor made up and threw out there. We don't know if they're going to work or not, and we don't know if those are the right numbers because we really don't have any data yet or any experience to apply to it. And so until that happens, I I I think amending the constitution is really premature. So um, rather than how you stated it, which was amend the Constitution first and then do the statutes, I think it should be the other way around. So, Because it's so difficult to amend the Constitution in Indiana, as it should be. Um, you know, I'm a lawyer, and I really have a huge regard, a huge respect for the Constitution. It is a very precious document, and it should be protected from uh, a lot of frivolous words or uh, or uh, even numbers that may change over a period of time, those kinds of things. And so I want to be sure that we're doing the right thing before we lock anything into the Constitution. And, and, uh, and I think a lot of my colleagues agree with that, although the Constitution amendment, which, by the way, it was three pages long, <laughs> unheard of uh, anywhere in the nation, as far as I know, for a constitutional amendment. Um, it, it did pass. And so it will have to be passed by another session of the legislature, and then it will go to a referendum of the people uh, before it will become law. So it, it, we're several years down the road before a constitutional amendment can actually be added to the Constitution. All right, Milo. Yes. And that process takes a time, like Vi said. And I believe we need to put those caps into the Constitution as soon as possible because I'm not a lawyer, but I can just see that there's going to be a group of taxpayers just waiting to take this to court and say, because you're treating the different classes of property differently for taxation purposes, that's unconstitutional. It's all, it, it, we already changed the Constitution to allow classifications of property. So I'll, I'll disagree with you on that. Milo and I agree on almost everything in property <laughs> taxes. But on that one, I'll disagree. That we are, The Constitution was changed a couple of years ago to allow different classifications of property. And so the only reason to put one, two, three actual numbers into the Constitution is to make sure the legislature never changes it again. And that's exactly the reason why I don't think we should pass the constitutional amendment yet until we're sure that those are the right numbers. Okay. And I'm not an attorney, but I'm relying on people that have told me mm-hmm. that they feel we need to do that. And uh, so I just – I don't want our taxes to be tied up in a big legal lawsuit. And also we're phasing in these caps at one and a half, two and a half, and three and a half to allow the local levies to be adjusted and to to absorb what's happening and, and so they don't have to close their doors and lay a bunch of people off that are unnecessarily laid off. All right. Thanks a lot for the call, Al. Thanks, Al. All right. We only have about a minute and a half to go. I want to clarify one thing, though. Al said, you know, majority of the people want property taxes repealed. Is there any evidence of that? 
I've not seen any evidence of that. But I, I think a lot of people do. But I, I think also a lot of people are, are concerned about fund, uh, stable funding stream for mm-hmm. public schools and for other uh, services, police and fire services. You know, at some point when, when your house is burning down and you call the fire department, you want to make sure that there's enough money in in the revenue stream for a particular uh, provider to make sure that the, the fire engine shows up. Right. In my survey that was mailed out to all the people in my district. Non-scientific, right? It's not scientific. Okay. Right. Yeah. I'll get a legal opinion on that later. Uh, <laughs> 40, That'll cost you big. Forty-seven <laughs> percent want to eliminate property taxes in my district and replace them with the revenue with sales or income. Forty-seven percent. Okay. All right. Well, we're about out of time, so I'm going to have to thank you both. Uh, I, well, I don't have to. I'd love to thank you both for, <laughs> for being here today. Thank you to Senator Vice Simpson and thank to you. Representative Milo Smith. It's to, always fun. And, always, yeah, and thank welcome. you always to Mary Catherine Carmichael, to producer Catherine Hegeman and engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Bob. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org.